0: Not using deadly force when you don't have to should be rewarded, but that wasn't the LAPD culture at the time, for sure.
1: And you're trying to change that now?
0: I've been trying to change this for years, and certainly in L.A., we're definitely going to give it a try.
1: Welcome to the Find Your Calling podcast. I'm Terry Eisman. As the November election inches closer, some of his supporters have started to refer to him as the godfather of progressive prosecutors, Since his time as San Francisco DA, he's taken to fighting mass incarceration and racial inequities. Today, he wants to replicate his model in the City of Angels. But is he the most qualified person to do just that? Here now with the answer, LA County District Attorney Candidate, George Gascon. District Attorney Gascon, thanks so much for being with me.
0: My pleasure, Terry. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. I'm I'm much better now that you're with me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> uh yes. I'm I'm very excited to to talk about um you know criminal justice reform and all of the sort of the causes um that you know of your life and including how to reform law enforcement. I think there is, you know, probably no timelier sort of juncture in recent history to to discuss this um given, you know, everything that we've seen in the past couple of weeks. So I'm I'm happy to have you here and I appreciate your time. Um but before we sort of dive into all the nitty gritty and all of your campaign planks, I think it's valuable to talk a little bit about you. Right, like sure. who you are, your biography. Because actually, I didn't even know of you before you jumped into this um, race. Uh, but I know that your family fled from Cuba at 13 years old. See, not everyone has this story. We have, yeah, to, yeah, we have yeah. to. This makes you unique, right? Because you've lived like a life and a half. Um, and and I know that your your dad was got also in trouble because of some anti government activity there in Cuba. So can you like share a little bit? about that and and, and what life was like for you as a teenager fleeing a country? Because not many teenagers do that,
0: (laughs) (laughs) right? Yeah, so, you know, I was born in Cuba and uh, my father was a uh, a strong believer in democracy with a capital D, not necessarily the Democratic Party, or, I mean, it was in Cuba. But so he fought the Batista regime, which was a very... um, you know, very repressive, right-wing government in Cuba in the 50s uh, till the late 50s. And uh, as a result of, you know, many like him fighting that regime, uh, Fidel Castro came into power in, in 1959 in Cuba, in January of 1959 to be exact. And my dad, you know, my father was very, uh, very hopeful. He actually was beaten by the police uh, under Batista. They thought he had died. They left him for dead. And wow. Hopefully he did not die. And when Castro became the, you know, the leader of the, the country, my father was very excited, as most Cubans were, that, that was a, it was going to be a departure mm-hmm. from totalita- totalitarianism. That and, you know, there was going to be yeah. a democracy. Unfortunately, uh, you know, the Castro regime very quickly became a totalitarian system. And the only difference, uh, the first one was the prior one was uh, to the right. And this is to the left. And and then, you know, leading to Cuba becoming a very repressive country for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Uh, My father being very outspoken again, you know, against against the system and and, uh, ruffled the feathers feathers (laughs) in a good way. And, you know, and eventually, you know, we, he really struggled. He was singled out by, by the uh, communist regime. My uncle wound up in prison. My uncle was a union organizer uh, prior to, to the revolution. When the re- revolution came in, they kind of created this union that so were really in arm with the government. Uh, my uncle wound up actually in prison for many years. And that led to Mm -hmm. my family, uh, my arm of the family, leaving Cuba in in the late 1960s. I, my grandmother, and one of my aunts was already in the U.S. Uh, They came in uh, the mid and late 50s. So Mm -hmm. when we came, they had moved. to. Originally, they lived in, in Providence, in Rhode Island. And my grandmother was having a lot of problems with the weather. Uh, she had arthritis and, you know, the cold, wet weather wasn't good for that for an elder, elderly person. Sure, so at sure. the recommendation of their physician, <clears throat> the, the, the part of the family that was here already in Providence moved to L.A. and then to Carahe, which is southeast L.A. County. And by the time my mm-hmm. family immigrated in the late 60s, we came directly To that area. So, you know, sort of my second part of my late teens, if you will, from 13 onwards, uh, were in the U.S. in a very poor working, uh, you know, working class community. Um, Sure. Were struggling in school with the English as a second language, eventually dropping out of school. Yeah, what was
1: that like? Because I, I don't I I mean I, I don't know much about the sort of the educational landscape during that time, but I must you know ELA maybe wasn't as big of a, a program maybe as it is now, yeah. right? It must have been much harder to learn yeah, English no, it, for somebody it really who can
0: speak. it, so it was. So actually, it was I you know uh, I want to say 1968 or so that LA Unified started a program. It was called NES, which is non English speaker and uh, and i was but it only in in my case it only uh, they only had them in, in middle school so i was transferred to nimitz uh, middle school um in Huntington park and the extent of the training mm-hmm. was actually that your english class was in english as a second language class but all your other classes were the regular curriculum so you know, you walk into a science class, you had no idea what they were talking about. You walk into a math class, you had no idea. Luckily, I did well in math only because Cuba mm-hmm. was so far further advanced in teaching math at an earlier age. And math is sort of universal. Mm-hmm. So the only classes mm-hmm. that I was doing well was math, uh, you know, English as a second language, PE and some shops but you know history science all the other stuff arts i was just really struggling and then i got socially promoted from middle school to high school where the there was no english as a second language program so i was immediately dropped really literally uh less than one academic year i did about a half of a three quarters of an academic year in the nes program and then i was in high school because i was in a transition between Middle and high school mm-hmm. and when went to Bell High School and immediately got thrown into yeah. a, you know, a 10th grade English class for English speakers. Wow. So I was so it, it they didn't really and, tailor yeah.
1: the educational experience. Nothing at all.
0: So uh, I started failing again every class except for PE now and uh, uh, math. I was still my math was still probably a couple of years ahead of uh, of uh, where you were in the U.S. at that point. Uh, so um, you know, I I remember going to a counselor and transitioning from the tenth to eleventh grade, which again they kept promoting you socially even if you were failing. And right. the counselor saying, Hey, you're you're actually he used the word stupid, which really shocked me because by this time I understood enough in the conversation wow. he basically say you're too stupid for college, so let's try to get you into a trade and you know, just kind of start shoveling me into every possible shop there was wood metal mechanics you know yeah and
1: so was that your was that your foray into the military that's that's how i I
0: left the high school so i you know i I continued to struggle Mm -hmm. um by this time i was you know i think by the time i was 16 i was you know i was probably the sickest kid in school because i was absent all the time and i would i would uh dummy up my mother's signatures and you know to bring an old pack to be accepted and uh, i spent my time you know uh surfing or outside and uh, not in school and eventually dropped out of school and it was when i turned 18 that you know i really wasn't happy i thought that you know the kids that were around me that were doing the same things that i was doing were were not going anywhere and uh i decided to join the army as a way to get away and the army really Mm, this is in
1: 1972 correct
0: and that's really where you know, my transition started to occur. My mentors, that's where I really finished high school, got a couple of years of college in that process, uh, which kind of facilitated when I got out of the army, uh, you know, going to Cal State Long Beach and getting a bachelor's in history. And I must say, George,
1: I found it so interesting because, you know, before before I sat down with you, I sort of looked into your history and it's, you actually served as a military police officer in Germany. right? Right? For at a time, which I found so interesting. Do you like, does when you think back to that time and sort of reflect on it, and I don't know how often (laughs) maybe you do this, but uh, do you think that fundamentally sort of altered your approach that you took as a police officer and even as a DA in San Francisco? Does that have any impact? Do you ever sort of think about that?
0: You know, it it did. But the reality was that, you know, the, the way that I wound up as a military police officer in Germany is very it wasn't a straight line so when i joined the army uh, i really yeah. thought that i was going to end up uh, being assigned to an infantry unit and going to vietnam uh and then what occurred is that by the time i finished my basic training and in, in the uh you know advanced infantry training um the there was a there was a the slowing major slowing down of the vietnam war there was a, there were peace talks going on in paris our secretary of state at, at the time was a, name, a gentleman by the name of Henry Kissinger. And, part, and they were mm-hmm. in peace talks with North Vietnam. And the, and the agreement was that the U.S. would not be sending any more combat troops to Vietnam in 1973. So actually, people, the com- all the combat troops were being brought back. And you know the, the, num- the number of uh, military personnel in Vietnam really started to be reduced. So we actually were diverted at that point, And that's how I wound up going to military police school and then later on being sent to Germany. Uh, so my, my path yeah. there was not exactly, you know, straightforward either. Uh, so when I became a military police in Germany, uh, working most of the time in central Germany, uh, this was a, the, really the height of the Cold War. Uh, You know, we had East and West Mm -hmm. Germany and, uh, you know, the tensions were incredible. Uh, There was a lot of uh, acts of terrorism against U.S. personnel, U.S. troops in Germany at the time. This was about a year after the Munich Olympics, uh, where there was a a large uh, number of the, uh, a little bit of history here the israeli olympic team mm-hmm. uh the olympic village they were they were targeted by a group called the bottom einhof which was a um a um a terrorist organization uh and you know it was a horrendous event
1: do you ever think back to that time y- you know now? i
0: mean occasionally i do uh it, it, it but but you know frankly i mean so mm-hmm. much that has happened since then so so I I right, was there really in the middle of you know we thought that the Russians tanks were going to come over any day you know so we were going on alerts every other night you know it was a uh, it was very very tense period and so the type of military policing that we did if you will it was so much geared towards you know the the potential military confrontation with uh, opposing troops so we were you know we we're working with infantry units and. Sure and uh, you know the combat units and, and that was really what the work that we did I mean occasionally uh you made an arrest for some GI going drunk and doing something stupid out of town but our work was really mostly very combat driven uh, as a mission if you will and then part mm-hmm. of it also was uh, security for you know for the uh, the bases that we worked on, so like I worked on a base. Uh, my main assignment was a uh, it was a it was a headquarters. was th- a third. Uh, I'm sorry. The, it was mm-hmm. a theater army support for um, for the for the you know the forces NATO U.S. and NATO forces in Germany. So there was a lot of uh, you know a lot of uh, not only high ranking personnel but a lot of classified work that went out of that location. So while we were doing, you know, we were sure. being rotated in out of the field because you had all this field exercise and you would come back and then you clean up your gear and then all of a sudden your, you know, work and security of the post. So that was really the, the bulk of my work.
1: That's very interesting. Uh, That's, I mean, but I, got I can't to even do, imagine that. Yeah,
0: I got to go to school. <laughs> yeah. and and uh, But, you know, I, I, I sort of at the end of my, career, my, my enlistment period, uh, and I promoted to sergeant very young. In fact, I was the youngest sergeant in my brigade. Yeah. um on a kind of a peacetime setting and you know when my enlistment period came to the end i had to make a decision do i want to make this a career and i was being offered the possibility to go to officer school and finally i decided not to, that i want to come back to civilian life and really my goal was to to get a history degree and teach history i was not coming back to be a police officer wow and that that's quite a that. that's
1: quite a jump from securing your turf yeah. to <laughs> to to history, right? I mean, it's uh, I mean, yeah. I, I guess you lived history, so that that's the through <laughs> that's the through line. Yeah. Um, but yeah. you know, you, you talked a little bit about your sort of your role in in security, right? As a military police officer, now you're of course running to um, indirectly, I guess, or directly, depend depending on how you look at it, secure the county of Los Angeles and protect it and sort of keep the keep the public safe. Safety. So I, I want to discuss a few of the the sort of the planks of your campaign that you're currently yeah, running. Sure. But before we do that, I want to ask you about sort of the overall role of the DA because my understanding is that the DA's sole job is to sort of administer justice based on California law, right? So you can reconfigure the office, but you can't really legislate, okay, because the, it's a, obviously a different job. So do you think the position has been Politicized as of late, do you think there has been more of a push from the public to have you become sort of the, the legislator, or any district attorney become the legislator?
0: Yeah, I think that the, you know the problems. The reality is that that the prosecutors have been involved in the legislative process for many years, so it's kind of a uh, it's actually kind of a cop out. With you know when you have DAs that say, well, you know my job is only to enforce uh, you know the law. The reality is if you look at uh prosecutors lobby in across the you know, across the, the line, every state, but certainly in California, have been very powerful drivers be, behind mass incarceration, you know, creating the legislation that enables them the work of prosecutors to do what we have. So it's been a yeah. joint force between prison guards, police unions, and prosecutors that have been driven that agenda for many years. And then the other part is the reality uh, while it is true that prosecutors do not directly legislate there because they have so much discretion, the way they right. interpret the law and the way they choose what to enforce and how to enforce it, uh, you know, quite frankly, becomes even more powerful than legislation. So the reality is that the prosecutors have been heavily engaging in, you know, the war on drugs. They have been heavily engaged in mass incarceration in this country, both by yeah. a, aggressively lobbying uh, for those enabling legislation that then they turn around and then, you know, I I would offer sometimes of using their discretion uh, have become what it has.
1: Yeah. So. And you call yourself a progressive prosecutor. So what what does that mean to you? Yeah.
0: So when I became a district attorney in 2011, after Kamala Harris became the attorney general of state and I have been in, San Francisco. Police in San Francisco. Yep. I came in, I have been already involved in progressive criminal justice reform efforts for over 10 years. So I came in with a very clear focus, understanding two things. Number one, Mm -hmm. uh, DAs control the criminal justice system, they control, they are the cause of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And number two, I also believe that mass incarceration was not giving us any more public safety. I, I believe that. By the time I became a DA in 2011, the, point of the, the the lack of returning investment, meaning how much incarceration actually buys safety, had been long you know long past. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that was not just me talking. There, there were studies that were showing that you know there was no the, the we had an inverse returning investment. We had a cost now uh, that you know we were incarcerating at rates that were not necessarily impacting, creating more safety. To the contrary, that were often creating more problems. Yeah. So I went about to try to show that we can reduce incarceration increase public safety. And that was really the single focus, if you will, uh, when the I the became progressive the progressive attorney. Mm-hmm. And then in talking to the people that I work with, we tried to identify other progressive prosecutors around the country. and really couldn't find any, certainly not any in the major major city or major county. So when I became the DA, the other part of my work is, was going to be actually begin to help create a, a space to incubate mm-hmm. progressive prosecutors in other part of the country, both getting elected and then as well as helping those that have been elected, perhaps as technical assistance. So my office became kind of a, a hub for that work as well. And that is why sometimes people refer to me as the godfather of progressive prosecutors, because we now have, you know, quite a few progressive people that identify themselves as a progressive prosecutor sure. uh, around the country. And, you know, unfortunately, more recently, people are trying to say they are when they really aren't. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> but that was sort of the, the movement. And I use the term movement because that's what we call it. And I tell people that, you know, even my race in L.A., yes, obviously, I'm the tip of the spear. I'm the one that puts himself out there. But, uh, yeah. but this is really about a movement in L.A. County being such a large, well, the largest county in the country is so important in this movement.
1: Right. And one of the obviously one of the key objectives of this movement uh, that you call it is bridging racial um, inequities, an issue that obviously has come to the fore and in um, not just in recent weeks, but I I would argue that even in recent years as more and more people have started to discuss this openly, um, right? So for, for those maybe who don't know and are listening to this, African Americans are incarcerated at five times the, the rate than, uh, than their white counterparts, um, and a disproportionate number of African American men in particular are incarcerated, which leaves their children fatherless, and that has so, sort of deleterious effects. Now, your office and the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office have tried to sort of fix the unconscious biases in the system by one of the things that you've done is enlist special software to hide defendants' ethnicities in certain cases. Where do you believe D.A. Lacey's office has most failed in accounting for racially based structural inequities despite that policy?
0: Well the reality is that, you know, what what we find out about D.A. Lacey is that what she says and what they do are two different things, right? The reality is that she really hasn't done anything meaningful to, to reduce the impact of racial inequalities in the system. And all you have to is look at her filing and prosecutorial practices. She's the most punitive, uh, by far, one of the most punitive prosecutors in the country. Uh, their work is you know, certainly way uh, past uh, in terms of the, the not only the disproportionality, but sometimes disparate treatment that African-Americans receive at, at the hands of her prosecutors. Um,
1: but what do you think is the biggest gap that she has thus far yet to fill in terms of those inequities?
0: Well, the, the biggest gap that she has to fill is because she has been so over punitive and they have gone so hard mm-hmm. in supporting police work that is often, ex- on the base case scenario, is biased. On the worst case scenario, racist mm-hmm. police work. And she has refused to to hold police accountable they prosecute disproportionately African-Americans and Latinos, mm-hmm. even for very minor offenses, sometimes, quite frankly, things that were not even an offense 20 years ago that prosecutors like her uh, have made him into offenses and incarcerate people at very early ages, including juveniles as adults. And then she's fought every single reform effort uh, in the last eight years. And I know this because we were used to it the other side we'd be in Sacramento lobbying, I would be lobbying for reform and she would be on the other side. You know, we were pushing for Prop 47. She was against it. We were pushing for Prop 57. She was against it. You know, and these are all major reform efforts, um, which cause a, a disproportionality in the work, even even in the best case scenarios.
1: Well, it's interesting because I think to, to one of the, the charges that you sort of lay on her, that her charging practices don't align sort of with with the way that it maybe should with, you know, with with the discussion that she should exercise. She actually responded to that, to the LA Times in February. And her argument is basically that she prosecutes in accordance with California law. And that's all she can do. And actually, a couple of days ago, there was an interesting interview that she did with Fox 11 Los Angeles where, you know, uh, a man, a police officer was beating um, a man on the street. He punched him like 12 times and... uh, the camera of a different officer captured that on video obviously the officer who battered the man was charged but the officer who did not intervene to yeah. prevent you know f- uh, f- <laughs> further further um, uh, punches was not yes uh sorry former uh yes punches was was not was not charged and basically her argument to that was well we couldn't charge him i i charged the other cop because he did that but i can't i can't do it to this one do you think she in doing that and in her and pre- in, in previous instances that you cite um do you believe she has neglected her statutory responsibility in enforcing california law
0: I, not only do i believe she's neglected her statutory responsibilities i believe she has been an enabler of police misconduct. Frankly, even the case that you mentioned in Boyle Heights, the only reason why she- Yes, in Boyle Heights. Yeah, heads. the only reason why mm-hmm. she she's prosecuting that case is because of the immense political pressure it started with me, uh, you know, immediately, as soon as the video became public, urging her to do so. And mm-hmm. she came out and said, well, we have to wait for an investigation to occur, uh, which you, you don't. First of all, DAs can conduct their own personal, their own independent investigation. And secondly, the video was all you needed and yeah, she waited, you know, almost two weeks uh, to bring charges. And then she said, well, this is a case that we were able to do so quickly because of video. No, it was because of the political pressure we put. There have been other cases with video that she hasn't prosecuted and, in fact, has made excuses for the, for the beating, right? Uh, so the reality is that she has been an enabler of bad police behavior and she has neglected her responsibility. And mm-hmm. even to the L.A. Times when she quoted the law concerning when a prosecutor can use uh, their prosecutorial uh, ability to prosecute officers in deadly use of force, she misquoted the law and gave the officers a broader spectrum of authority that they really have under the law. So actually, again, you know, she's either uh, neglectful and doesn't understand the law, which would be very scary, or she is intentionally misleading the public and looking the other way. Either way is bad.
1: Which one do you think it is?
0: You know, I cannot believe that she doesn't know the law, so I have to say that, you know, she's so, so conflicted because she gets so much money from police unions that she's just basically in their pocket. She's become a pawn with police unions.
1: You know, you've been very critical of the relationship between law enforcement and the DA's office. One activist called it like a Bonnie and Clyde relationship, Mm -hmm. right, where the, the thinking goes that because DAs rely on law enforcement to charge, there's an inherent conflict of interest for a DA to look at bad actors, hostile actors in the police department. Would you support an independent unit within A.G. Becerra's office to review and prosecute bad police officers? Would that help sort of offset yeah, you know, actually,
0: the, the, the answer is is, is is yes, but I would go deeper than A.G. Vissera. I don't think that, you know, the Attorney General has some of the same conflicts that, that you could mm-hmm. see in the local district attorneys, right? They, they work with policing on a regular basis. And then we have another problem. Mm-hmm. California is so large that the level of resources that the Attorney General would have to be to be pressing in every community to roll to an investigation 24-7 mm-hmm. is, is somewhat problematic given some parts of the state are hardly populated but the event could happen and you have others like la very heavily populated what i bo- and by the way when i was the district attorney in san francisco i tried to get the attorney general twice mm-hmm. uh to help us with cases and take over a case and in two different ags that did, did, did not want to do it why not uh, what was their justification well, I- you know, I mean, I can tell you what I think. I don't know what the, you know, they, they were just... What do you what I do think you think it's because, you know, the fear of the reprisal by police labor, because, you know, people have been so afraid, elected officials have been so afraid of police labor, they don't want to get in their crosshairs. I think that's evolving very quickly now, right? I think police money now is becoming toxic. But really, I'm, before the George Floyd case, it wasn't the case, right? So... Uh, so I think it was that mm-hmm. fear of because of police unions, you know, they tell you they do things for public safety. But they really don't. It's about self-interest. Uh, mm-hmm. And they'll attack anybody that, that will try to hold police accountable. And they immediately try to put a jacket on you that you're soft on crime. And, you know, as the community has been buying that argument for, for decades, right? You know, if you're not supporting police unions, you must be soft on crime or you're pro-criminal, which is not the case, right? But people are afraid of that. So my contention has been that we have to create enabling legislation that actually allows a county to create an alternative office, much like you have the alternative public defender's office, not an elected official, someone that gets appointed for a specific period of time so we can insulate them to, to electoral politics, mm-hmm. have term limits, but, you know, appointment and then term limits, um, that has an independent body that investigates all police uses of force and police corruption cases, and take it away from the district attorneys. Wow, that's very interesting. Yeah, hmm.
1: that's and and sort of that that would that person you think would be independent of political whims and could sort of withstand all of that and right to, is, is to, that your to contention? To the
0: extent that we can, that's the goal. Obviously, got it. Uh, you know what you want is you want to create almost like an arm of the civil rights division of the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice, not under the current administration, but. <laughs> where they were, they were very independent about going out and doing their work, they didn't have to worry about, you know, elections or yeah. who was there. You know, we need to do that at the county level. By mm-hmm. the way, until we get, and that's going to require a legislative process that the unions, police unions are going to fight tooth and nail. Um, you know, what I propose is actually uh, appointing, uh, you know, independent process, you know, kind of special counsels to handle some of the cases in the meantime that we, we create what I did in San Francisco, which is an independent investigation bureau that only the police use of force. And I brought in civil rights lawyers and former public mm-hmm. defenders, and we segregated them from the rest of the the office to keep that separation so that we're not working with police in the day in and day out. Uh, but the best solution is still the, the creation of a separate unit, because even in my case with IIB, you know, many community activists still felt that they didn't trust us, right? Because... You know, I was a DA, right? Even though the police union was pouring money. It's still under me, your umbrella. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a lack of trust, which is understandable.
1: Just as we wrap things up, um, you know, obviously you're very critical of the district attorney, but you've previously said that you like her as a person. What do you think has been greatest her, her greatest accomplishment in the office? Has there been one in your eyes?
0: You know, I, I when I say I like her as a person, I believe she's a Christian woman. I believe that she really I believe that she is inherently a good person. Um, I just, her work, in my opinion, is horrendous. Um, you know, her, the way that office is run, either by, by doing or by, or by failing to do, uh, is has been so punitive. The things that she believes in, you know, she believes in the death penalty. Uh, she believes in and the And you don't, I don't, you don't believe Right. In that. Uh, yes. You know, She talks about, you know, being sensitive to mental health problems. But, yeah, you know, she's incarcerated more mentally ill than probably even her predecessor. Um, So there's just so many things that she'll say something. But when you look at what the actual work is, uh, has been very horrendous uh, and, and has destroyed so many lives and so many communities. And at the same time, violent crime has gone up under her leadership. So you can't even say she's not keeping us safe. Um, so I just, you know, I, I can't think of anything on the workplace that I would say that's a good thing. The culture of that office is horrendous and she's been part of that culture.
1: You know, I think no matter what people think of you politically, you've climbed echelons of law enforcement very successfully in San Francisco. Now you're trying to sort of emulate that in a you know, different way in L.A. Um, if you could travel back in time, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe take a little ship back in time and give yourself advice t- to your 21-year-old self. What would you tell that, George?
0: Ghesko? Well, I would have, I would have been uh, extremely critical of uh, the war on drugs. I would have been extremely critical of the role that police play in incarcerating multiple generations of uh, poor people, especially African-Americans. Um, you know, I would have been very critical of the way that policing for generations has operated as almost a military force. Um, you know, I, I, I think that those are things that would have really, um, I'm not sure that I would have had much of a role as a young officer and be able to stop because actually i fought some of the things. I mean, I remember having an incident where somebody under the, in, you know, influence of PCP, uh, got involved in a fight with us. He was trying to go for my partner's gun and we were able to take control without, uh, letting this person take the gun. And when I got back to the station, I was heavily, I was reprimanded, actually. It was an official reprimand that was uh, given to me for not using deadly force. And when I, you know, I thought I should be commended because I thought I didn't, that I didn't use deadly force and we took control. And the con- you know the sergeant told me, well, you put yourself and your partner at risk. Uh, and I'm saying, wow, this is a, is so backwards, I would think, because I think Not using deadly force when you don't have to should be rewarded, but that wasn't the LAPD culture at the time, for sure.
1: And you're trying to change that now?
0: I've been trying to change this for years, and certainly in LA, we're definitely going to give it a try.
1: A big thank you to DA Gascon. Learn more about his roadmap to the Hall of Justice on his website, georgegascon.org. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe, most importantly, stay healthy, And I'll see you right back here on next week's episode
0: of Find Your Calling.